From Hype HQ in Chicago, Illinois, Startup Hype Man presents the Goat to Market Show. What's up, everyone? I am your host, Raj Nation, the founder and chief pitch artist of Startup Hype Man. This podcast is where we bring you founders, company leaders, and creatives who are building it, who are doing it, who have been there and done that. And they pull back the curtain on their go-to-market strategies so that you can build a venture that you love and become the GOAT of your industry. Want first listen on episodes before anyone else? Subscribe to our newsletter at StartupHypeMan.com. You will get alerts every Sunday morning when we release new episodes. All right, let's hear how today's guest is becoming the GOAT. Ladies and gentlemen, making his way to the microphone from New York City. He is the co-founder and CEO of Regal. Please welcome Alex Love. Hey, thank you for having me. Now, that's the most chill response to that introduction I think I've ever gotten. <laughs> it cut out for a while. You were so loud in the mic. It actually like went all the it way peaked. over. I peaked it. Okay. It all right. Peaked. Good to know. Good to know. I'll move the mic back for the next episode. He is Alex Levin, as I mentioned, co-founder and CEO of Regal. What is Regal? They are the outbound phone and SMS sales solution for B2C businesses built to drive more conversions so that they can hit their growth goals way faster. Regal drives 3,500,000 plus ROI positive conversations per month. And in a very short time, they launched in 2020, they have already generated a billion dollars plus of revenue for their customers. As a company themselves, they've raised a $39 million Series A, totaling at $42 million of funding overall. They were able to achieve $10 million ARR within the first two years of operations. And keep in mind, that first year of operations was the start of the pandemic. So that's no... That's no short task that they've been able to accomplish in such a short time. Part of this journey in growing to such a scalable operation, both and being able to ramp up their revenue for themselves, and then also be able in turn to do that well and drive customer revenue, has been the people they have brought on board along the way and the team that they have built. And so today's conversation is around team and specifically what they've accomplished is achieving a 97% hiring acceptance rate. Alex, once again, welcome to the show. Why is this on your mind and why is this important to you? Sure. So my co-founder, Rebecca, and I have worked at startups for a while. And uh, you know, it is, it is what everybody says, but it is for sure you know, true. You know, the entirety of your success is dependent on the team that you have around you. you know, that is the first and the last thing you should be thinking about every day. And, you know, as we as we started realizing that there was a, a real business here that would help our customers and drive a lot of success for the brands that we worked with, uh, we wanted to really start focusing on team. So very early on, you know, we saw there was really extreme product market fit and a lot of our tensions shifted to how do we build the best team around us? Particularly in this case, Rebecca and I come from the B2C world and, you know, obviously we're in a B2B SaaS company now. And so this was new to us. So very important to us to think about, you know, who who needed to join us to make sure that we filled out uh, our experience in an area we didn't know as well. We're going to dive a whole lot more into how they built up that team and have have been so successful in the process. Before we do that, let's learn a little bit more about Alex. So Alex, um, you grew up in New York. Um, you've been around that area for a long time for your entire life. Uh, I'm curious, what was you know for me personally. Um, my first, at least to my memory, my first entrepreneurial endeavor was, I think, in third grade when I took um, construction paper, a stapler, and some uh, thick pens and markers and made uh, custom video game strategy guides for like Mortal Kombat. Wow. Um, I'm curious. 
Well, well, to be honest, I I took what was actually in like the Game Informer magazine and like cut it out and glue sticked it, and that was half of what mine was. Uh, well, then you put it on the internet. Yeah, oh well, yeah. I mean, not not quite. It was AOL uh, two point or three point oh, at that point. Still, um, that was that was the innovation. It was a new distribution. <laughs> Um, I don't know if I don't know if my sales were one dollar or zero dollars, or if I just gave them out for free. But what was your what, what do you recall as your first uh, entrepreneurial endeavor? Yeah, I, you know, I think we were lucky. My brother, I have two younger brothers, and um, you know, all three of us, you know, would hear about sort of entrepreneurial things every night at dinner because my father ran a small business, and so you know, the the concept of you know uh, buy at a low price, sell at a high price, like we understood from a pretty young age. You know, and uh, you know the the idea of making your customers successful would lead to making you successful. We understood at a pretty young age. You know, when we were little, uh, you know, we had all sorts of harebrained ideas for sure. The only one that made us like any real money in those days, you know, at whatever age, uh, ten or fifteen, real money is like you know twenty dollars or hundred dollars. But yeah. uh, is we uh, we used to uh, spend the summer north of New York City. And we would go and pick like wild berries and sell them to all the local markets. And we thought we were making out like bandits because, you know, it didn't cost us anything to go into the woods and pick these berries and we'd sell them for, you know, $5 per carton. And then one day we walked in the store and saw the store selling like $20 a carton. (laughs) (laughs) We were getting disintermediated or, you know, we weren't, we didn't have the right uh, strategy to go to the customer. But uh, but you know it, it's backbreaking work to do anything where you're picking by the bushel or picking by the the carton. So definitely not something we want to do long term. But you know I think over high school and college, you know I, I was lucky. I, you know I worked for political campaigns. I worked in finance. Uh, you know I worked in sort of some real businesses, and you know quickly understood uh, that. Uh, and the, the line is famous now that software is eating the world. That every business was going to be a software business. You weren't going to be successful in business if you didn't understand how software was built. And so uh, even though I had an undergraduate degree in philosophy and psychology, I left and went and started working for technology companies to learn that skill set. And you know, it served me well, for sure. You mentioned you had exposure to entrepreneurship through your father and a small yeah. business that he ran. What was that business? And if as you look at yourself as a kid observing your father running his business, what would you say is the one or maybe two traits or qualities you observed from him? So it was a business that bought and sold uh, steel products. So it's usually called a steel service center. So they, their suppliers are mostly abroad and they buy these big, look like a huge toilet paper roll of steel for lack of a better word. Um, you know, but it's like six feet high and you know, mm-hmm. six feet wide. And, you know, they would slice it and process it and then sell it in smaller pieces in the United States to people who had specific end uses. Um, Everything from sort of decorative, you know, cans that you might get gifts in to automotive end uses and other industrial end uses. Um, You know, watching him go through it, I mean, a few things, you know, one, uh, it was it was a business where they had to constantly reinvent themselves, you know, because of how fast. You know, there, you know, things globalized and prices became transparent. Every, you know, I remember even as a kid, like realizing every two or three years, they'd have to come up with a whole new way of doing business because, you know, you couldn't buy from Canada and sell to the U.S. anymore because everyone understood that. You now had to go to China or to Korea and you couldn't just go to China, Korea and sell the same product in the States. You had to process it. And now you couldn't just process anymore. You had to do something else. And, you know, I think watching that constant process of reinvention was fascinating um, and then certainly the other one, you know, even from a young age, it was very clear that it was a people business. You know, there there was an opportunity in the market and where they had the right people in place, they could be very successful. And, you know, we hear, you know, about the successes and where they didn't have the right people in place, the business fell apart. And, you know, if you, if you didn't watch it every single day, it was gone the next. And so I think even from a young age, like it impressed upon us, like, how important it was to have the right people in place. Let's dive into like where you are today. So you mentioned you've got this background in B2C. So how does, in an abbreviated fashion, walk me through the journey of getting to, I'm going to start Regal or I'm going to co-found Regal and we're going to do this thing. Yeah. So I won't go back that far, but you know, Rebecca and I um, both were working in startups and we got recruited 
into um, this company that was trying to allow people to buy home improvements online. And actually, there were a couple of different players trying to do this. And ultimately, they all got brought together under one umbrella called Angie. And so we own Angie's mm-hmm. List, very well known, and Home yeah. Advisor and Handy, these different brands. We're the largest home improvements company in the world, actually. Uh, and and at the beginning, the idea was, hey, let's sell home improvements online the exact same way that people sell a shirt or you know shoes or a CD on the internet. You know, show a picture and a price and review and it'll be fine. And a lot of people came online because the demand was there, but we found that the conversion of people who were interested to people who bought was relatively low compared to historical standards in home improvements. Um, and a digital only experience really didn't do it because it's a more considered purchase. It's more expensive. It's about your home. It's a bit emotional. You're not sure what you want. You have to trust the provider that's going to do it for you. And so we uh, noticed that if you had a conversation with a customer, so these are inbound customers that are you know looking for a fence installation and call them and say, hey, you have a home, you want a fence, tell us more. So if you had that conversation, uh, conversion rate went way up. Mm. And you know, why? Well, you know, one, you're engaging with them and it was actually a much higher engagement channel than email. So typically if you emailed that person, 3% would click. If you call them, 20 or 30% would answer. So that's fascinating. Actually, seeing the phone was a higher engagement channel. Like everyone thinks this. Phone as a spammy channel, as email is not spammy, but it's not, it's the opposite. Email is the spammy channel that no one looks at. And phone, actually, if it's something important, people are happy to talk on. Um, so that was fascinating. And then when you get on the phone, you, know, you build trust with them, you answer their questions, uh, you disambiguate sort of things that, a, you know, a website on a mobile device can't tell you right. and people would buy. And so uh, we ended up building very large teams doing that. And, you know, eventually, uh, you know, it took us a while, but eventually I had the insight that, you know, we should build software for these teams because the current contact center software is all built for customer service and for retail. And for the case where the basic principle is don't talk to your customer at all costs, you know, with a 10 foot pole, avoid your customer. We've all felt it where you can't in any way talk to the brand. But in these industries uh, that are more considered, you know, things like insurance, lending, healthcare, education, local services, actually, the business is no, talking to the customer leads to more sales. Talking to the customer leads to a better experience. So it's a critical thing to actually have that conversation. So uh, we started building software specifically for these B2C sales teams. And to your point, like we got very uh, um, sort of lucky uh, that, that quickly, like we found product market fit and the business scaled up. I'll tell you from personal experience right now, we're in the midst of a couple home improvement projects, like getting a couple things resolved. And, um, it's actually amazing. Like, you know, we've talked to a few different contractors. It's amazing. I'm like, there are certain ones I'm like, do you not want my business? Like, like what, like, you know, being very sales driven myself, given the nature of startup hype man's business, like it just blows my mind how someone will come and like, you know, they did like a drone flyover of our roof to figure out, you know, what we need to get repaired. Yeah. And then it's just like it's hard to get a hold of them after that, or they don't think to reach out. And I'm, and then meanwhile, someone else come, you know, who we are also talking to is like, hey, like we got a person over to your house. They're they're emailing me, they're calling me, they're texting me with follow ups, mm-hmm. all these kinds of things. And naturally, like we like the person who's being very proactive with us. And it it really is amazing how much of a difference it makes, and how many people in that industry just sit back and don't think maybe I should be proactive in reaching out to the customer here. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's simpler at a smaller scale. If you're a, you know, mom and pop home improvements company, relatively easy to track, you know, the 10 customers you're working with at a given time. What's happened online is the scale of these businesses has gotten enormous. You know, at, at uh, uh, you know, Angie, we were, we were dealing with millions of customers a month. Yeah. <laughs> Which, so at that scale, like you can't like keep it in your head. You can't just be like proactive and good and nice. Like you need systems that do this. And so, you know, those are the kinds of businesses you work with now is these much larger businesses where they're transitioning from the model of, hey, we have good people out there who are just going to know what to do to at the scale of the internet, we have to use systems and technology to identify who we should be reaching out to, what channel should we be engaging them in? What's the message we should be using? How should we branding the call? 
um, you know, what's the next step, you know, next best action after we've had this thing and, you know, allowing people to do what they do very well, which is uh, connect with somebody, emote, solve a complicated problem, get them to, to the next step, not rely on people to try to know when is the best time to call somebody, you know, mm-hmm. there's no way a human is going to do better than a machine at that. So let's dive into our main topic for today, which is how you've been able to achieve a 97% hiring acceptance rate as you've built up the team. Um, for, uh, let's start with how many employees are you at today? Uh, Regal's at 120 employees today. 120 employees. And, and that like, that, you know, this is not a small sample size. This is not like five people with a 97% acceptance rate. Yeah. And I should say, you know, th- this is not our first rodeo. The last company, uh, by the end, you know, we were thousands of employees. We certainly didn't hire all of them. Like I said, it was bringing together multiple companies, but certainly my co-founder and I, you know, have each hired hundreds of people. And so uh, over time, we've come to like a pretty strong opinion of, you know, what you need to do to be successful within hiring. So given your past experience, if you apply that to Regal, you know, everyone remembers who their first employee was. So who was your first employee? What qualities did they have? And did you already have like an intentional pro- hiring process developed at that point? Or was it more like fly by the seat of your pants and then you started to figure it out? Yeah. A lot of what we do now, we came to at the last company. So we definitely had this process already. Um, when you're when you're so early and it's your first person, you know, it, it's a different process, right? You know, you're, you're, you're hand holding all of this and like bringing them in. Uh, both because you know they're taking a big risk on you, and you know you need to acknowledge that and spend the time with, to make sure that they're comfortable with it, and because you need to make sure that they're going to be the right standard bearer in terms of culture. And when I say culture, I want to be specific. I'm not talking about you know does somebody play ping pong and like you know are they fun at the events? It's not that culture to me is something quite different. To us, is quite different. Is within a company, how do you make decisions? When you're at a company and you agree with how they make decisions, you'll have a lot of fun. And that's, I think, when people say they have a culture fit is they actually, they mean is I agree with how my leaders are making decisions. When you're at a company and you don't agree with how they're making decisions, you're going to be miserable because every time they're doing something, you're going, I don't, not sure I agreed with that. Like, oh, they're doing it this way. Mm, I wouldn't have done that. And it's pervasive through everything. So from the beginning, what we did sit down and establish is, you know, for this company, for Regal, at this stage, you know, how do we want to make decisions? And that's the values that we have. You know, we talk about how do we build for customer love? You know, we say, you know, treat customers like royalty. Uh, how do we make sure that we're using data to make decisions easier? So we talk about uh, data beats opinion. Uh, how do we make sure that we're going and executing quickly, right? So execute with urgency. Uh, how do we make sure we're doing things that lead to growth, uh, especially at this stage of business? And last, you know, how do we make sure everybody enjoys the journey within the company? And so those five values are what we teach internally to every single person that comes on. And what we use as we think about, is this person going to be uh, happy in this company? Are they going to like how we make decisions? If it feels like they do have those same values, then great. And if they don't, uh, you know, that we're going to sort of not find a good fit. So very early on uh, to the first employee, um, it was somebody that we had worked with before and so knew sort of he fit the values that we wanted. And I think, you know, uh, it was sort of, you know, for him a leap because he was in a another startup where he had a good role and a good opportunity and this was something different. And I think for him, it was, you know, his belief in what Rebecca and I were capable of doing mostly that got him to start. So with that person then, um, you know, you, you already had this idea of what your values were and it sounds like being values driven or knowing what your core values is, is really important from day one. Would you recommend that is what a company has in place before they make that first hire? I don't think we had it written down before we made the first hire. That was probably six months before we wrote them down. Um, But definitely have it in your head. Uh, You know, Rebecca and I, to this day, interview every single person at the company. So everybody on the R&D side, Rebecca is the last interview, everybody on the go-to-market side on the last interview. And, you know, that, you know, until, I don't know, certainly hundreds of people, if not thousands of people, that'll be the case, right? So you you need as a founder to be the standard bearer for what is the way you want people to be making decisions in the company. And you only want to be bringing in people that you really are comfortable with, you know, going and making decisions on their own, because that's the reality It's like you as a founder might know what's going to happen for the next month or two. And you might have an idea very far out of what your vision is overall. 
and the, you know, you can give people that context, but then after that, you're hiring people to go make the decisions to get you there. And so you have to be comfortable with how they're making decisions. Um, and that I think is lost often in this, in this whole process as people sort of are looking for people, they're focused on the wrong things. You know, when we first talked, you mentioned how the way you've approached it and you think a lot of other companies perhaps get this wrong, but Regal has approached hiring like a marketing funnel. Can you share really what you mean by that and how you've been able to apply it in your process? Yeah. So I I should say both Rebecca and I are very quantitative by background and, uh, you know, we're product managers and like ran marketing teams over time. So it comes naturally to us to think about, um, about recruiting this way, but you know, to some extent, you know, you have a funnel where you have a certain number of people that exist. You know, you're trying to get them interested in your company. Of those, some percentage will convert to the interview stage and to the offer stage, and some percentage of people get offered a job will actually join. And so, you can go through and look at your funnel, and you you should as that set of steps, and you should know exactly how many people you have in each step and what the conversion rate is between steps. And, you know, most importantly, I think the math that people forget to do is, hey, if I need to have one person in seat, how many people do I need to have at the top of the funnel? And how long does it take from the top funnel to the seat? So, you know, it's people, when you sort of ask them off the cuff, say, oh, I probably need like 10 people at the top of the funnel. You need many, many more than that when you actually look at like, you know, you know, getting to a good fit through the funnel. And, you know, it takes a while. It takes at least 30 days, if not 60 days, to take somebody from, you know, interested at the top of funnel to uh, actually starting at your company. And because people forget that, I think they make it hard for themselves to hit their hiring goals because they're either not investing enough into it or, you know, not making sure they have enough people at the top of the funnel that are qualified that will end up in great hires. I think to that point, um, last year, spring of 2022, was the first time I... um, embarked on a like formal hiring process for startup hype man and i don't know for some reason it, it, i guess when it's your first time going through it you're not you're obviously not aware of all the potential blind spots i also think we always tend to think when it's our thing we'll somehow manage to like break whatever the norms are that otherwise exist in the market. And so we maybe if we're not conscious enough, we don't account for certain um, bottlenecks or breaking points in the process. And one of the things I was surprised about to that point of like not having a, a big enough top funnel, like like volume of people at top funnel yeah. is I'd um, tell someone I wanted to interview them. They'd agreed to the interview and some people actually don't show up to the interview <laughs> Mm-hmm. And some of them don't show up and they do email with asking to reschedule, but others don't actually ever reply to you and they just totally ghost. So I do think it's really important for everyone listening to this to understand just because it's your thing doesn't mean people are going to like all of a sudden na- like magically change the behavior that, and the way they would treat any other company. Yeah. And it's, it's even, I'd be more extreme than that. You know, I think People see, especially if you've been in a big company, people see that there's inbound that comes in. You know, if you're LinkedIn, if you're Facebook, if you're yep. Google, well-known company, people just apply. And so there's constantly this idea of all I need to do is post a job online and people apply and I'll interview and I'll hire one of them. And sure, maybe at some scale, maybe when you're well enough known, that's possible. But the reality is for 99% of companies, that is not how it works. Like, you know, you posting a job on the internet you even posting that then on LinkedIn or on whatever job site does zero. And you know more likely the people that are applying to it are not going to be qualified for the job because the people who are actively looking for that job are going to say, well, I'm not yet there, but I'm going to go apply for it. So instead, what, you know, what we think about is you know, who are the people that are out there that we want? And we will actively go after those people to make sure that we're getting them into the funnel because we don't assume that they've heard of us. We don't assume that they want us like for some crazy reason. We assume that we need to convince them that it's worth their time to come talk with us, have a conversation. So this is where it really starts to become like a sales process, right? You're doing active outbound prospecting of potential employees of your company. Um, What does a prospecting message look like? And are you, you know, are you doing cold email, cold DMs, cold texting? Yeah, all of the mechanisms. So, uh, I, I'll, I'll give up a, a secret here. The single most successful um, way to reach people is, you know, coming from a founder 
or if you want to be cynical, coming from an, the email address of a founder through automation. But let's just say coming from a founder, uh, you know, an email whose subject line is hello. And all you need to say is, I've heard through the grapevine, you're fantastic. Do you have some time to chat? And just that. And, you know, I have an enormous uh, success rate of getting people to respond to that message. Do you so, find uh, that with that, um, it's okay to be as generic and not say specifically what you've heard about the person? Yeah, it's intentional. So what you're trying to do is you're, you know, you're trying to make sure the person knows that you've looked at them specifically. And we have, again, you could be cynical and not, but we actually have looked at this person. You know, uh, you're trying to get them interested in knowing what it is about them that got, you know, that you to reach out to them because they're a little bit flattered or who said something about them. Cause again, they're a little bit flattered. Um, and then, you know, they're, especially if it's a founder reaching out, they're interested in like what the founder has to say. And, you know, it's not explicitly about recruiting. So for people who want it to be about recruiting, they perceive it as about recruiting for people that go, oh, you know, I, I have a job that I like, but you know, I'm still interested in talking to this guy or this, uh, this woman, if it's Rebecca who's reaching out, they make it in their head about not recruiting. So it's very intentionally vague. Hmm. Okay. Intentionally vague. And that's what makes it not about recruiting. Yeah. Like in, in, uh, like, you know, you could call somebody and say, Hey, you know, I really love to chat, like looking forward to it. And it, it, it's funny. It creates like, it's an, it's an unclosed loop and like people want to call back to know what it is you want to talk about. So there's a little bit of psychology in it and, and it's fine. Like, you know, you should AB test on your own, what subject lines work, what messaging works, you know, our recruiters, when they are reaching out, use different messages. They don't use that generic message. They actually say, hey, I see in your experience, you have this and you're great for this role. And this is what I would like to talk to you and chat about, about you know, Regal. And this is about us. So our recruiters don't use this same message. This is mostly from founders reaching out. I find that it's quite successful. Um, and then once you know, you're starting to get people in the funnel, you, know, you do need a process for that. So you know, use Calendly, use something to help you schedule uh, you don't need to have hour-long interviews at the beginning. They can be even 15 minutes at the beginning is fine. If you really need to hire a lot, you know, get on the phone. You know, the the questions I usually lead with is, you know, I'll give my background quickly, and I lead with questions like, please, you know, help me understand why you've done the things you've done. I don't need them to tell me what they've done. I can see that on LinkedIn, but why have they done that, and what do they want to do next? And just find out if there's going to be some fit there, because if you're not going to help them achieve their goals, this is not a good fit. But, you know, if you hear based on their goals that there is something that, you know, uh, you have your company, it would be an opportunity for them. Great. You know, engage, you know, typical questions in that early stuff will be things like, you know, if I were to call your boss today and ask them about you, what would they say? And again, it gets people talking about, you know, what they do well, what they don't do well. You know, what do you want to be doing in five to 10 years? Um, you know, if, if I another version of the first question, is if I were to go chat with your friends, like what do your friends do? How do they perceive you? Again, you're trying to like quickly break down the wall and understand what this person is like to see if you think there's a good fit. You're not trying to ask, don't ask, are you smart? Are you good at your job? Those are terrible questions and very hard for the person to answer. You'll have to evaluate those later on in the process. Uh, you know, If you find that the person does have the cultural values they're looking for and you can actually help them, well, it's your turn to sell now, right? You need to stand up and say, you know what? I'm really impressed with you. I think that what you've done is fantastic. And there's a great opportunity for you know you to work here, do this role, and reach that outcome. And if they're interested, right, they'll engage. And you know, usually you'll have to have them you know meet a few other people. But at some point, the way you evaluate, in my mind, uh, for the skill set for the job is create a project, not a long project, something that takes them an hour, two hours, three hours, where you know you've picked out what are the specific skills for this job that we know you need to have, and give them you know something that tests those skills, have them send it back so you can actually see it. And then sit down and review it together. And the value of reviewing it together is so that you not just see the work, but see how they present it to you. And then make sure you give them feedback. Make sure that it's a two-way street, that they're not just presenting to you, but you're also giving them feedback so they can see what it would be like to work with you day to day. Because that's a critical part of that working uh, relationship. You know, if that you know checks the box and now they're they're culturally a fit, they have the skills you want, you know, again, like you're back into selling. So I'm happy to sort of talk about the rest of the process if you like, or we can go back to earlier. We'll get, yeah, I do want to go into that. I do actually want to backtrack a little bit and talk a little bit about the difference between founder doing it versus a recruiter doing it. Yeah. Um, but this, this is 
this conversation is really about how we're scaling up at the end of the day and scaling up a good team. Another part of the scale conversation is product. And for everyone listening, as you're building and growing your company, how you build your product is fundamentally important and influences and perhaps is the, you know, the axis of if you're going to scale and be successful or if you're going to stall out. So as you're building up your company, who are you looking to to develop that product for you, especially if you're not a non-technical founder? Well, if you haven't heard yet, Akeva is the software development partner that can help you go from zero to one, whether it's blockchain or no chain, web three or web two, if it's a mobile app or a SaaS, the team at Akeva builds it at startup speed and enterprise level refinement, which is why they're so great. Um, startups like Stride Health, Haveno, Olive, Side, and so many more trust Akeva from their first dollar all the way up to their billion dollar valuation. They are presenting partners of this show and they are ready to help you become the GOAT to market. I'll tell you, anytime someone asks me for a software dev recommendation, I tell them Akeva. Literally in the last, I think, two weeks alone, uh, I have referred two startup hype man companies to Akeva when they said, hey, do you know someone who's looking for software help? Um, their co-founder, Brandon, is also a separate from Akeva, is also a tech startup founder separately himself. So uh, just trust me when I say like, Akeva's team knows exactly what the founder journey is like. And as a result, they know what needs to be built at what stage and how to build it so that way things don't break later on. You can learn more at akeva.io. Again, that's akeva, A-K-A-V-A dot I-O to learn more or just reach out to me directly if you want to learn more or if you want a direct intro to them. That's akeva.io. Today on the Goat to Market show, we've got Alex Levin, the co-founder and CEO of Regal. And we're talking through how they've achieved a 97% hiring acceptance rate. Now, before the break there, one of the things Alex mentioned was when it's the founder reaching out versus him as the founder or, or his co-founder, Rebecca, reaching out, it's that more vague sort of broad curiosity peaking message versus when they have a recruiter, a hired recruiter reaching out directly. I want to know, like, why is it that you have a different approach when it's you or Rebecca, your co-founder, doing it versus a recruiter? Like, I guess if it works well when you're doing it, why not just apply it to what a recruiter is going to do? Yeah. Again, we've A-B tested and we find that with us, the message I gave you sort of uh, piques more interest than when the recruiters are reaching out. We find it's more successful with a more specific message. I could give a long why and wherefore, but you know, in our, that's just from testing in our experience, but what works best. Well, my guess, I'm going to guess, is this partly due to the fact that when it like when recruiter is in the title of someone's job description, there's already this stigma that they have to break. So then they've got to prove like I would almost feel like if a recruiter sends a vague message, it feels icky. Uh, and so they've got to kind of like prove themselves, prove themselves to the prospect that they've got a legitimate opportunity for them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so as we go through this stuff, you know, we definitely think about it in three different phases. So we think about the first phase as getting people engaged. So, you know, how many people do we need to email? How many people do we need to reach out to? What do we need to do to get X number of people at the top of the funnel that are qualified, engaged, so that we can actually then go and hire enough people 30 to 60 days later? So that's one process. There's a second whole process, which is from that person being engaged to offer. And we can talk about that stage yeah. now. Like, And there's actually a third process that people forget, which is from somebody accepting an offer to them being you know, uh, uh, at your company, you know, working and successful. And too many people forget that last piece because there's a there's a big, you know, there's a drop off between acceptance and show up. And there's definitely a lot of failure between people showing up in their first month or two or three months. So let's walk through that step two in the funnel, right? Like now, now you've you've had that initial conversation, you've, you know, you've had a successful outreach to them, they want to talk, you have that first meeting. What happens yeah. now and how do you prepare for success? So say, you know, uh, you know, evaluate on the phone for cultural pieces, do a project for the sort of skills pieces and finding out if you think they're a good fit, you know, do the reference checks, you know, the more senior they are, the more you need to make sure you're doing reference checks that they didn't give you, but certainly at, at any stage, do some reference check. So, and, and on reference check, you know, the, the most telling question of all of them is basically of everybody you've worked with in this world, are they top 10%? Mm. The answer is mm, maybe, I don't know, like, you know, your answer. If it's a resounding yes, 
then great. Like you have a fantastic person. But the people who've worked with them before know whether this is a star or not. And so like they'll be able to tell you pretty quickly. And they'll be honest, like, you know, with whether this is top 10% or not. So I'd say that's most telling on a reference. Um, when you do finally get to offer, so now you've like gathered everything, <laughs> you're going to go offer a few things. So before you ever talk about anything to do with money, you know, you need to get the person on the phone and say, you know, if I were to offer you this job today, would you say yes? Or another version of it is if I were to offer this job, assuming the compensation is the market compensation, would you say yes? Now, why do we do that? We want to make sure that we get all objections out before we give them the offer letter. And so this is the opportunity for the person to go, well, I still need to talk with my significant other, or actually, I'm not sure that I'm ready to leave my job or, uh, you know, well, you know, I know you guys are great, but um, I'm worried about the manager that I'd work for. I don't know what it is, but you need to get all that stuff out now until that person is willing to say yes. Like if you were, if you were to offer me the job, this is my number one choice. It's what I want to do. Don't give them an offer because you still have selling to do. So go, you know, pause, go back, figure out how you're going to solve all of these open questions they have, because that's more important. Um, it can take all kinds of work. It can take, you know, again, talking with their significant others, or it can take introducing them to investors, or, uh, you know, maybe they have hit on a valid issue and it's not the right person. And so better find out then than later in the process. But you know the the number one mistake I think inexperienced managers make in this process, even though we force this question on everybody, is the person goes, well, yeah, I don't know, maybe, but you should still give me the offer, and then I'll decide. Don't give the offer. You know, if they're not excited about your company and ready to say that as long as the offer is right, they want to start, you you haven't gotten the person over the line, and you shouldn't just. Everyone who's inexperienced wants to just put an offer out there and see what happens. It's not going to go well. If anything, it's going to go worse if you do that. Um, so, you know, really like hold firm on not giving offers until you've got this settled. Now, once you have that settled, you know, there's resources like Option Impact and other ones that actually allow you to see what salary, you know, is um, standard and what equity is standard for that level at your stage. And you need to decide as a company, what do you want to be at? 25th percentile, 50th percentile, 75th percentile, 90th? So just choose and say, as a company, for salary, we're going to be at this level. And for equity, we're going to be at this level. Use the public resources of real benchmark data. That way, when you're going into the conversation, it's not about what somebody's making now. It's about, for our stage company in this role, what is the benchmark? And you know, there's usually a range. It's not like a number. It's usually, let's say, you know, 50 to 70, you know, $1,000 and X, Y, you know, equity. And you know, that gives you a little bit of opportunity to negotiate. Everyone has learned these days to ask. So if you come in, I actually believe in coming in with a real offer, not with a lower number. But if you come in with an offer, be ready for the person to ask for something. And so be ready to give them either a little bit more salary or more equity or more bonus. When people come back and ask for all three, you know, stop them and say, look, we're not in a situation where we can give all three. You know, what is most important to you? And make sure the person is dictating to you what matters most between salary, bonus, and equity, and give them the thing if you want them to start, you know, give them the thing that they want. You know, I, I the goal of the salary negotiation is not to make people happy. In a typical salary negotiation, both sides are not going to end up exactly where they want, but it's going to end up in a place that everybody can, you know, bury it and move on with their lives. So, you know, if you're doing something and putting somebody in a position where they're going to be uncomfortable on an ongoing basis, that's bad. But as long as you guys can you know, agree to disagree and come to a, a place that both sides are okay with moving on, great, go and do that. Um, we're very clear with people as to how we do comp. We benchmark at 75th percentile for our stage company, you know, in, in these specific roles. And then the things that change salary on an ongoing basis are either them getting a promotion or the company going to the next stage. So if we were to be a $100 million company, we should pay differently than if we we're a $10 million company. And that has to do with the size of the company. And so we'll go and give people a raise, even if they stay in the same job based off of that change. And, you know, people, once they understand that, uh, at least understand our compensation strategy, and then they're sort of more open to sort of the numbers that we come to. Now, that doesn't mean that we'll always come to an agreement on those numbers, but now at least we have we have, we have a way of doing it. Yeah. Um, but well, I do like want to say, you know, coming back to the the, the note on the offer letter, before we get too far away from that, yeah. it is really just amazing to me as you're saying that I'm like, wow, this is such 
like this is this is exactly how sales like should operate, right? Like right. one of my hard and fast rules, you know, if we have a potential client, you know, maybe we have like a good conversation with them and then they're like, okay, great. So like what, you know, do you send us a proposal now? Like how does it work? And I'll be like, well, are you ready to move forward? Because if the answer is yes, we will send you a contract for signature. Right. But I don't want to send that unless you're absolutely certain we're going to. It's work exactly the same. So I guess you know a, a good takeaway to this, if you were uh, wanted to, is to say, you know, the processes that great sales teams use and great marketing teams use can be applied to recruiting as well. And the recruiters that are analytical and understand the sales process and the uh, marketing process will do well. Recruiters who don't and go off of their gut or go off of just, you know, I'm a nice person are not going to do well in the long run because it's just not, it's not how the, you know, it's it's not how the best recruiting teams work anymore. You're going to get beaten by the recruiting team that does use these up-to-date and modern practices. And none of these practices should be uh, high pressure. None of these practices should be scammy. It's not the point. The practice should be transparent and open and trying to cut to as quickly as possible you know, are they the right person? You know, are we going to agree on comp? Are we going to agree on what the role is? Is it going to help the person hit their goals? If the answer is yes to those things, great. You're going to have a good fit. If the answer is no, yeah, don't don't push it forward. It's going to be wrong for both sides. I got a couple other quick questions here before we begin our wrap up. So thus far, we've covered the value of direct founder outreach, that first initial 15-minute conversation, um, having a some assignment or project along the way. Um, not sending the offer letter until you've gotten all objections out of the way, and only those who you know you you qualify them for the offer letter. Essentially, um, my next question is: They say yes. How do you hedge against which which happens even more often now than it did even three four years ago? I'd say is they say yes, and then they just like don't show up to work or. You know, they they peace out after one to two months. Yeah. So I'll try to do the, the condensed version of this piece, but it's a critical part because now you've put in all this work and all this money. So don't, you know, make sure they're successful. So one, on average, about 10% of people don't show up to day one. People are shocked by that number, but that's the industry average. So, <laughs> you know, if you want to be better than the industry average, make sure that you have weekly check-ins with the person. Make sure that you're showing them about the successes of the companies between now and when they start. Make sure that your onboarding team is reaching out to them and making sure they understand what the first couple of days will look like so they're not surprised. Again, if you've done your job and qualified it well before they ever got the offer, you're going to be okay. If you forgot to qualify, well, you're going to find out all of a sudden that they just told their company that they're leaving in two weeks and the company goes, oh my goodness, we can't let you leave. We're going to double your salary and now you're out. So if, if you had just found out before that they hadn't yet told their company, you know, then you would have been able to prevent this by either you know, helping them uh, get armed with something to say or giving them a different compensation or never even offering them a job if you knew they really wanted to stay. So that's critical. Once they actually start, obviously, huge value in investing in the people, particularly on what is the vision of the company and what are the values like we were talking about. Uh, we do set up a process at 90 days where we force managers to basically, uh, Netflix called it a keeper test. I don't call it that particularly, but to go through, you know, um, is this person hitting the goals that I've set? So for every hire, we give them a set of goals that we want them to hit in the first 90 days. And at 90 days, we have the manager go back and say, based on what I know now, is this the person I want in this role? And if the answer is no, well, then you should graciously help the person go find another role. And, you know, probably in my experience, if the answer is no from the manager, the the employee is also feeling it that it's not a good fit. I'm not saying you have to do it that day, but for sure have the conversation with the employee that it's not working and either help them turn it around or help them go find another job somewhere else. But that's not a good fit. You know, where the answer is yes um, or yes, they're great. Now, you know, you need to invest even more in this person now and help them be successful. So, you know, in those cases where you find stars, like give them more opportunities as fast as possible. I don't mean you have to change their salary or promote them in 90 days, but give them the opportunity to get to know an exec better. Give them an opportunity on a new project. Give them an opportunity to go on a trip, you know, with a customer, whatever it may be, you know, especially the ones that you've identified earlier are stars, invest in them. Something that I've learned the hard, to that point, something that I've learned the hard way is like you have your you have to know what success equals what the KPIs are for an employee to be deemed successful and they have to know that as well um 
if they don't know how they are being measured for performance on day one, um, it's really hard to for them to know what they might need to be doing on their own time to improve in the role or to make sure they're, they're, they're putting forth their best foot. Two quick questions, and then we'll do our wrap-up. Question number one is, as the founder, um, you have a million other responsibilities. Any advice for how to... Because it is important, especially I would say up through like maybe your first 50 employees or more that you talk to everyone during the hiring process. Mm-hmm. Any advice for amidst everything else going on, how to still fit time for, for being part of the hiring process in your day? Yeah. I mean, uh, the obvious one is just make it a priority. You know, Google has a great feature in Google Calendar now where you can tag each uh, different event, a different color and with a different Mm -hmm. tag. And then you can actually look back at your week and say, what percentage of my week did I spend on different things? So everything in my calendar is coded and I can go look back and say, did I spend, you know, 30% of my week on recruiting? And if the answer is no, well, probably I need to change the allocation of my time the next week. Um, so, you know, you make it a priority, you can evaluate yourself against it, again, to your point, knowing your goals and evaluating them. So even as a founder, hold yourself to that. Um, in terms of other pieces, you know, I think you need to be very honest with yourself about like what the real hiring goals are and how many people you need to get at the top of the funnel to do that. So, you know, if you need to hire one person, you can probably do it yourself. You know, uh, a, a typical re- full-time recruiter can recruit, if it's engineers, maybe one to two a month. If it's go-to-market roles, maybe three or four a month. But, you know, that's like a full-time person dedicated on that. So you as a founder, if you're doing a part-time, don't expect to hire four people a month. You're not going to do it. It's unrealistic. So just understand the math and make sure you're investing in the resources you need to support yourself if you really need to hire hiring goals. Um, the last piece I'd say is the advice I've been given on uh, you know, external recruiters is, is sort of this. Broadly, don't use external recruiters. Don't pay to hire people. There are specific roles where uh, that's not true. So particularly in certain engineering roles, there's a very vibrant recruiting community and they can be very helpful in getting senior engineering managers into an organization. And then with executives, uh, either you're working with a recruiter that you're paying or a recruiter at a venture capital firm, but largely executives are being introduced to companies through recruiters. So for those two sorts of roles, probably allocate money to have a third party help you. But for others, you know, when somebody sends you an email saying, I've got a great candidate or I've got whatever, like, don't take the bait. Like it is not what you need to be doing. You should be going out and reaching out to people on your own. I'm going to hold off on my last question, just in the interest of time. So let's go straight to our wrap up. Alex, where can our listeners find you? Where can they learn more about you and more about Regal? So you can go to regal.io and read more about us or any anytime, just email me at hello at regal.io. Uh, if you're a B2C brand, particularly in a more considered industry like insurance, healthcare, lending, education, local services, you know it's important that you're talking to your customer, you probably have teams that are doing it. Regal can help you massively amplify what those teams are doing, drive more revenue from your current leads that you're getting. Alex, who is one person who you want to give a shout out to? Uh, so always my co-founder. I could never do without her. Um, we are very lucky uh, that we have complementary skill sets and work well together. Um, you know, it's been a phenomenal sort of partnership. And uh, yeah, uh, I'm very excited for the next couple of years together. Let's do our final key lessons and takeaways from this conversation. I'll go first, then I'll toss it to you. Our topic today was achieving a 97% hiring success rate. Uh, We've had such a good conversation. So there are many things I could choose. I'm just going to pick one of the things um, that I really liked. And that was earlier on, you said, true culture fit is alignment on how a person makes a decision within the company. Alex, top lesson or takeaway for the listeners? Yeah, I think the number one thing like we've talked about is, you know, don't think of recruiting as an art, think of it as a science. And, you know, use the sort of the the theoretical sort of marketing funnel to help you think about the actual recruiting process. And then in the final stages, make sure that you're getting somebody to a yes verbally that they would take the job. It is their number one choice before you go to an offer. So make sure that you're sitting through and working through all of their concerns before you get to an offer, not after. 
My final question, which is how we end every episode on this show, fill in the blank. Entrepreneurship is blank. A roller coaster. It's a roller coaster. You know, every day is, is different. You know, some days are, you know, high, some days are lows. I think the best entrepreneurs are able to sort of take it in stride and know that all of it is getting them towards that outcome. I was watching an interview uh, just the other day and somebody was sort of saying, you know, can you guess what is the number one skill of entrepreneurs? And it's not being smart. It's not being connected. It's perseverance. It's determination. And so people who can make it through all the ups and downs are the ones who succeed. He is Alex Levin, co-founder, CEO of Regal. Alex, this was a wonderful conversation. And I want to thank you for joining us today. And for all your listeners, I've got a million more questions I want to ask Alex. We don't have time today. And if you've been listening and you have more follow-up questions you want to ask him, guess what? He's going to be hopping into our Goat to Market Club for an AMA the whole week this, that this episode is live, the first week this episode is live. So if you want to ask follow-up questions on hiring practices, if you want to ask questions on how he's built Regal, the product, if you want to ask more questions about his dad's steel processing company, all of that is fair game in the Ask Me Anything happening inside of the Goat to Market Club. To join, you can go to startuphypeman.com slash GTM hyphen club. Startuphypeman.com slash GTM hyphen club. We'll see you inside. Alex, we'll see you inside there. And thanks for joining us today on the Goat to Market show. Thank you for having me. That does it for this week's episode. Thank you again to our guests for joining and sharing their knowledge. Did you like what you heard? Well, leave us a rating and review on your podcast app before you head out of here. And while you're at it, who's one friend who you think would find value in hearing today's conversation? Go ahead and share the episode with them. I would really appreciate it. And I thank you for doing that. Remember, we've got more going down with our guest inside Goat to Market Club. Think of it like the after show, the after party, the after hours special. Our guest is going to hop inside the club and do an Ask Me Anything. So you can follow up with any of those questions that came to mind as you were listening. You can follow up and ask them to our guest inside our club. To join, just head to startuphypeman.com slash GTM dash club. Startuphypeman.com slash GTM dash club. GTM Club is $9 a month, but your first month is free. You can cancel any time, and you're not only getting the AMAs, you're also getting our monthly strategy drops that are for members only, where we're teaching hyper-specific, tactical, go-to-market strategies, plus cool member-to-member interactions and other bonus resources. All of that happens inside the club. So again, startuphypeman.com slash GTM dash club. We'll see you inside the club, and we'll see you next week. But before you head out, remember, why be a unicorn when you can be the goat?